The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In downtown New York in the early 20th century, a secret club of women met regularly to discuss ideas, politics, art and their own lives. They forged friendships and alliances and took up some of the most significant social fights of the day. Joanna Scutz joined the podcast recently to tell Eleanor Evans more about the women of the heterodoxy club, which is the subject of her new book, Hotbed. Joanna, thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the History Extra podcast. And I wanted to start by diving right into the club at the centre of your book, Hotbed. What was the Heterodoxy Club? So it was a group for women that was essentially a group of friends that began with about 25 women meeting essentially to discuss kind of anything and everything that interested them. The thing that made the group unusual was that they were what they called advanced women, or as one of the members put it, women who did things and did them openly, which means essentially at the time that they were professional women, they were writers and journalists, they were political activists, and they were sort of known to each other and known to the world for their prominence in all kinds of fields. And they met in Greenwich Village in downtown New York, beginning sometime in 1912. We don't know exactly the details because they didn't keep records of their meetings, which was a deliberate policy to allow the women to air all kinds of opinions, to debate, to disagree, and to change their minds, which has made it hard to research them historically. But definitely freed them up to forge really strong friendships and intellectual bonds. So it's a groundbreaking group that we're going to dive into just a while. I wonder first, can you take us inside Greenwich Village at this time in the 1910s? What was this neighbourhood, this place like? So it was changing a lot. It had since the beginning of the century, it had started to sort of open up. It was a working class neighborhood at the time. There were lots of sort of small scale factories and shops. It was quite diverse uh, in terms of income. There were richer areas and poorer areas. It was somewhat cut off. It wasn't uh, well connected. It wasn't connected by the subway until 1917. So it was a little out of the way. If anyone has been there, it's still distinctive within New York. It's somewhat higgledy-piggledy. The streets are an on-the-grid system. You have to kind of wind your way a bit. There are cobblestone streets. There were stables that, as the motor car was becoming more prevalent, were starting to be turned over to artist studios. It was an immigrant neighborhood. It had a big Italian population, a big Irish population. It had had a big African-American population relatively, which had started to sort of migrate out of that area, eventually up to Harlem. So it was kind of mixed. It was cheap. Um, There were rooming houses where artists and uh, poets and recent college graduates 
could convene. So it started to get this sort of reputation as a somewhat raffish, unconventional bohemian neighborhood. And that was the character that it was gathering in the early 20th century. And by the time heterodoxy started to meet, that was really beginning to flower. Lots of these houses and restaurants were close by. So you would bump into lots of people that you knew. And there was this, the idea of the hotbed that I take as my title is sort of the idea that that cross-pollination and germination of ideas really owes a great deal to just the nature of the neighbourhood. So that's great context, thank you. It's against this backdrop that this amazing club is formed. You mentioned it's difficult to piece together, but how much is known exactly about how this club came to be? Most of what's known is from how the women themselves remembered the club. A lot of the women in the group wrote memoirs that have sort of long been forgotten, but they published them sort of in the mid-20th century when they were looking back on their lives. So some of the prominent members left tantalizing little records. The woman I quoted at the beginning, who is, uh, her name is Mabel Dodge at the time. She becomes Mabel Dodge Luhan when she, that's her fourth husband. But she was a, a fascinating woman and socialite arts patron. And she wrote voluminous memoirs that contained a little description of heterodoxy, this idea of women who did things openly. But there were also other women who wrote memoirs, one of them, Dr. Sarah Jo Baker, who was a very interesting pioneering doctor and public health expert in New York who wrote her memoirs. So there are these fragments and then there are unpublished memoirs. And then the club itself, because the women involved were so well known, there were also it sort of became an open secret. So about 1914, there was a big newspaper article about this. They called it the Star Chamber Council of the Prominent Women of New York and kind of talked about the women involved, named some of them. These little bits and pieces are out there and were pulled together. And a researcher in the 1970s put together a book that was kind of a, I think, a a thesis that she really sort of gleaned. She went into the archives and looked at lots of newspaper archives and obituaries and found kind of stories of cobbled together sort of who was in the club. But her research was very fragmentary. She sort of had lots of women who she didn't really know much about and sort of hoped that the research would continue and it would sort of deepen. And that didn't really happen. So it kind of was left a bit as a as a story that was half known. And I just thought there was so much more to say about these women, the way that their friendship and their club and their community advanced ideas in feminism and women's political rights, but also other kinds of interests that drew the club together, avant-garde theatre, journalism, labour rights, socialism. These were lots of the ideas that were kind of brought the club together. So it's an extraordinary club encompassing these women who do things. In the course of writing this book, you're piecing together from letters, from testimonies, what one of these meetings might have looked like. Can you take us inside one of these meetings with some of these women? What's known about that? So they moved around a bit, but that's partly because a lot of these Greenwich Village restaurants and bars and hangout spots, they would kind of be open for six months or something and then they would change. But one of the big places where they met was a restaurant called Polly's run by a wonderful kind of village fixture, a woman named Polly Halliday. 
different versions of her name exist. But she ran this restaurant in the basement of a townhouse and upstairs was uh, the Liberal Club, which was kind of a political club that also held sort of dances and parties and theatre productions. Right next door, there was a bookshop and lending library, this sort of freewheeling sort of hangout space. And her restaurant in the basement served big, you know, cheap dishes of spaghetti that was a sort of new and exotic thing for non-Italians to be enjoying. And they ate. The tables were wood. Tables and chairs were sort of close together. The walls were painted bright colours. They had artwork on the walls. They had a sort of a, a very open loud, I imagine, kind of place. And the meetings happened at lunchtime, usually stretching into the early afternoon around these long wooden tables. Marie Jenny Howe, the the founder and leader, had a gavel that she would use to bash on the table and bring the meeting to order because there would, you know, sometimes there would be 30, 40 people, all with big ideas and opinions around the table. So there was a very It was a very social, I imagine, kind of a raucous gathering. And they would go there and and then perhaps stay and have lunch. And then, you know, in the evening, there would be some other social, you know, social events, really social life, really, really centered on these institutions in the village, these restaurants and tea rooms, lots of which were run by women, actually. There was a big sense that female entrepreneurs often immigrants were running these restaurants, opening these cafes, and so their spirit and their inventiveness, their playfulness, they really give a certain character, a very a distinctive character to the village that it became a tourist attraction and, and tourists were always going there looking for sort of the authentic village experience and writing about how they could never find it <laughs> because that's always what happens with a scene like that. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. And I suppose while those fragments are super frustrating for any of us who, who want to know more, and I mean, your book brings them together so beautifully, but the very nature of that, the fact that it was undocumented, is what gave these women such freedom to speak on a lot of these social issues. Can you, can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, that seems to have been something that they really prized. A lot of them comment on it and sort of, they were well-known women. So they were involved in a lot of public organizations. They were in politics, in journalism, in the arts. So they were very used to being interviewed and quoted and being on the record. And they knew, I think, that you were often misquoted or taken out of context or your ideas were misrepresented. And so there was something about the freedom to speak without being recorded, I think they all valued. But I think it was also part of the nature of what they talked about. Initially, the club was involved in these kind of public issues and it was sort of they would discuss political events, but they would also sometimes discuss new books and 
plays and kind of cultural developments at sort of a book club <laughs> element, I think was part of it. They would have guest speakers. They always had an agenda. But as the club developed, they also became very interested in sort of personal histories and their own stories as feminists. They identified as feminists. They were very involved in popularizing and explaining what the word feminism meant um, to an American audience, which was a very new idea. And they were sort of interested in how they became that, how these women who often came from quite conventional middle-class backgrounds diverged so completely from what was expected of them, how they either didn't marry or they married and divorced. And, and they really prioritized their careers and social change over sort of private domestic life. To pick up on that idea of feminism then, what, what did it mean for an American audience and for these women in the 1910s? Well, there were so many different articles written, often by members of this club, that it had titles like, what is feminism? One of my favorite is Femi What? <laughs> it's like the title of an, of an article. And Part of it was about distinguishing it from suffrage, which was a very familiar, very well-known campaign. A lot of the women were involved in the suffrage fight. In the 1910s, they were sort of in a new sort of resurgence of that fight. The 19th Amendment to the Constitution, which granted women the right to vote, was passed, um, ratified in the U.S. in 1920. So it was very much an active fight in the 1910s, in the decade before. But the women who were in heterodoxy were very careful to say that the vote was the, a tool, was, a be, was the beginning of the fight, and the vote was a tool that they wanted to use for further political change and social change. There are a couple of different definitions, a large sort of schools of thought around feminism in the club. The dominant one was probably the one that the founder, Marie Jenny Howe, had sort of gleaned from the work of Charlotte Perkins Gilman, who was another club member, probably the most well-known at the time. She's best known to us now as a novelist. She wrote a short novel called The Yellow Wallpaper that dramatizes postpartum depression and male medical misunderstandings of that. And it's really a powerful book. But she was very well-known in her time as a socialist, as an economist, as a sort of economic theorist. And her version of feminism was a very humanist one, where it sort of took as the base idea that women and men were fundamentally human, that their humanness was what made them equal, and that they had equal rights to develop that humanity, that, that human potential, essentially, in whatever way they chose. So that idea of sort of that fundamental equality that denied sort of the importance of sex as a source of uh, kind of directing how your life was supposed to go. That was a very influential idea for the women in the club. There were other versions of feminism that the women sort of debated. Some versions of feminism really took women's a sort of biological idea of womanhood and the idea of motherhood especially as being the thing that actually made women special and there was an argument there was a, a strain of feminist thought that said that it was women's capacity to bear children or the capacity of child bearers in a society that that made them unique and meant that they should have rights those were women who wanted to abolish marriage and just have the state support 
mothers and child bearers, <laughs> which didn't take hold as quite as strongly, but that was a dominant, that was, that was a pretty powerful version of it. So there were, there were different definitions, but I would say the idea of human potential, developing one's human potential over and above one's sort of gendered social place, that was really the idea that had the most impact and was the most exciting and revolutionary for the women in the club. Yes, revolutionary for sure. And I mean, so many of those ideas have had long echoes throughout this last century. I'm sure a lot of listeners will be will be nodding along in recognition. You've mentioned that these women were largely from a certain class, middle class or upper class backgrounds, almost entirely white. How much were they thinking about other groups within society? So it's hard to project back our sort of versions of social organisation to 100 years ago, but there were certainly ways in which this club was more open and saw a connection between feminism and sort of the wider social issues that other sort of later strains of it in the 20th century tended to lose sight of. Certainly in the first decade of the club, which is where I focus in my book, the idea that feminism was connected to socialism and that social revolution, that that a socialist revolution was going to liberate women and society together was very, very widely held in the club. That's partly because the membership included two of the most prominent socialist activists and leaders of the time, Rose Pastor Stokes, who was a Jewish immigrant, working class Jewish immigrant who was very famous in her in her day because she married a millionaire and uh, she was uh, she married a, a wasp Protestant, very wealthy Protestant man who was sort of heir to a I think a I'm going to forget a rubber fortune or so one of these rubber barony kind of fortunes, the Stokes family and so he was a social activist and they met and married and became a kind of joint leading force in the Socialist Party. Another working class woman in the club, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, whose family were Irish, she was even more of a fiery leader. She was a leader with the Industrial Workers of the World, which was the most radical left-wing union in the early 20th century, involved in all kinds of strike actions. She traveled the country. She was a teenager. She dropped out of high school to lead this fight to unionize industrial workers across the country. She was a really dramatic, fiery figure. And the two of them became good friends. But their presence in the club and their influence in the club certainly convinced a lot of the more middle-class members that, that socialism was... Socialism felt like a very viable political alternative in the 1910s. The socialist candidate for president, Eugene Debs, was very successful in the elections in 1912 and 1916. The the American left really gets very powerfully crushed and suppressed during and immediately after World War I. But in the years leading up to America's entry in the war, it's a really vibrant and viable political movement that most of the women in heterodoxy were pretty convinced by. In terms of race, the club had one member who was African-American, a wealthy black woman from Brooklyn named Grace Nail Johnson, who was the wife of James Weldon Johnson, who was a very prominent black leader and activist and really interesting 
and very accomplished I go into this in the book and it's sort of a complicated story, but the the club was pretty involved in the founding of the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, which is still to this day a prominent racial justice organization. It was founded in response to lynchings and racist violence in the early 20th century. And it's founded largely by white and Jewish leaders who in the 20s and and beyond, the leadership was taken over in 1920 by James Weldon Johnson, and it became a Black-led organization. But there certainly was a lot of interest in the club and in the wider sort of left-wing sort of white progressive community in the horror of lynching, the issue of lynching as a sort of nationwide, not just a Southern phenomenon, but a real nationwide scourge that was being battled. And and Grace Nail Johnson became an an anti-lynching advocate. She was raising money on behalf of women who were lynching victims. And she, she fundraised within the club. She used the club's connections to kind of get support for this particularly women-focused relief effort. So there certainly was interest in the club. It was nevertheless a highly segregated moment in American history. New York City was a democratic city. And at the time, the Democratic Party was the party of of Southern segregationists. It was a very difficult environment for Black intellectuals and Black activists to really get power, let alone ordinary working class Black people. So that starts to shift around in in the 20s. But in the decade that I'm talking about, heterodoxy is quite unusual in having these sort of links of friendship, but it certainly isn't by any means a genuinely sort of diverse and open group, partly because it was very small. So there wasn't really, you know, it wasn't a sort of mass subscription organization or anything. It was put together out of links of friendship and just the nature of the way that people socialized was fairly racially segregated at the time. I was able to find in the archives a letter from the founder of the club, the letter that invited Grace Nail Johnson in, which is a really interesting document. They were sort of personal friends through her husband, who was connected with a lot of progressive groups, Grace's husband, that is. And so there was a sort of an, an open invitation, a deliberate effort to sort of bring in this woman, but certainly not to sort of bring in other people. It was sort of, she was seen as special and sort of somewhat unique and kind of a representative of her race. So that was sort of how that relationship seems to have played out. But yes, it's hard to sort of generalize from such a small sample size. But yeah, I do I do try in the book to sort of give a sense of that context and what race relations were like. It was, a again, to reiterate, just a really... It was a pretty dark time in racial politics and sort of the beginning of really some Black-led movements that were trying to push back and just change sort of this post-Reconstruction nadir of of race relations. Yes, I very much appreciate that context. And we've got a clear picture, I think, emerging of this club as a place for women to share ideas, engage with progressive ideas or radical ideas of the day, share ideas about art and the way that women's lives should be, people's lives should be. But if we can pick up on their more 
direct action, their activism, because that is also a very big part of the book. I wonder if we can talk about Inez Mulholland, because her story really, really jumped off the page for me. Yes, absolutely. So she's one of the younger members of the club. She was raised in New York and in London as the daughter of a very wealthy inventor. And her father actually was one of the founding members of the NAACP and was very interested in in African-American rights and sort of involved in, in that. So, so actually Inez became friends with and sort of involved with, with sort of racial justice activism, even more so than some of the other members of the club. But she was also very prominent in the suffrage fight and in the labor fight. She was a tremendously glamorous figure. So even before she graduated from college, she was in the headlines. She got involved in a suffrage uh, protest that interrupted President Taft was having this big parade up Fifth Avenue and she goes up into a a second floor window with a loudspeaker and starts yelling votes for women. And because she is, she sort of stops the parade and there's this moment of shock that she sort of silenced the crowd. And then supposedly, according to the newspapers, her beauty and her poise kind of silences this angry mob. And from that moment on, she's a go-to headline grabber. She's on a white horse at the front of the suffrage parade in Washington, D.C. in 1913. And she was really involved in the the suffrage fight leading up to the presidential election in 1916. But she had a really sad end to her story that she was on a a really grueling suffrage speaking tour in 1916 around the election. She was out in the West Coast and Alice Paul, who was the National Women's Party leader, who had sort of recognised her star power and was just kind of putting her on any stage that would have her in this incredible, like she's crisscrossing the country by train. And she was very sick, but she didn't really know how sick she was. Had some kind of blood condition. It's it's a very, it, it's somewhat unclear exactly what, what happened, but she was speaking on stage in Los Angeles in November and she collapsed and she was only 30 years old and she was taken into hospital. She was in hospital for a, for a number of days, and but she never recovered. And so she died at the end of 1916 and she sort of becomes a, a figurehead and a martyr for the movement. She's the first, certainly, and her death was a huge shock to the heterodoxy women just because, you know, she was so young and so vital. And her sister actually continued the fight and is involved in uh, some of the protests. The women who stood sentry outside the White House gates and took the protest really to President Wilson's front door. But yes, her her story and her legacy were really just, she's a fascinating figure and is packed so much into this, into this short life. So yeah, she's really, uh, she was sort of an emblematic of both how visible the heterodoxy women were and how involved they were in the the fights of the day. Yes, that image of her on the horse leading the, the parade is such a striking one. And I think you make the point in the book that a lot of these women had an appreciation of of events and actions that would in obviously today's terminology, make their actions go viral in the 1910s. Can you give some other examples of how they were working alongside these labour movements and other movements to draw attention? Well, yeah, I mean, it was a moment when the newspapers, printing technology is changing. 
Newspapers can get photographs far more easily than before. Illustrated papers become much cheaper to produce. Color printing, all of these things that like make visual sort of shift shift the country really very quickly into being an image-saturated culture. Attractive young women <laughs> gain a certain currency and part of the, uh, certainly to stay with the suffrage movement for a second, one of the things that they really landed on as a tactic in the 1910s is making the movement attractive. So for so long, there had been this stereotype of the suffragist as this ugly, unmarriageable spinster who, you know, who was just going out and fighting because she couldn't get a husband, or if she had a husband, she was neglecting him and neglecting the house and the children. And there's all these like postcards. And we've all seen those pictures of the kind of the ugly buck-toothed spinster who's just kind of up there saying like, I want, I want the vote. And part of their efforts in the 1910s was really to make it seem like a glamorous, sexy, exciting thing. So the big parades that we, that we're all familiar with, those really become a mass movement, uh, mass tactic in the 1910s. And as Mulholland, because she grew up in Kensington as well as in New York, she was involved in the British movement. And the British movement was much more confrontational, much more visual, much more visible. And a lot of those tactics were taken back by young activists like Inez Mulholland to the United States. They were somewhat, they they were controversial. They didn't have quite as much of that window breaking, uh, window smashing and the sort of more confrontational stuff that happens a bit, but a little bit later. But in terms of the, you know, the visibility of the movement, they're taking cues from the British. They're also taking cues from the labor movement because the strikes, I talk in the book about the activism of the labor movement in New York in the early part of the 20th century, very close to Greenwich Village, there were so many garment factories and clothing manufacturers, most of whose workers were young women and immigrant women. And there was a real sense that they were harnessing, that they had power and that they could come together. And if they down tools, this whole industry would grind to a halt. And it was something where a lot of the women in heterodoxy got their first taste of a sort of mass protest. Especially in 1911, there's a really tragic incident where the Triangle Waste Company, which was a, a shirt waste manufacturer, a clothing manufacturer that had its factory on the corner of Washington Square Park, so in Greenwich Village, there was a tragic fire, which people may well know about the, the Triangle Factory fire. It's sort of a notorious industrial accident slash it was it was not entirely an accident. It was certainly the conditions of the, the factory, the way that the owners treated the workers had murderous effects. And 147 people died, most of whom were young women, teenagers, young immigrants. And it was horrific. And it happened in public. It happened in the middle of the day. People gathered in Washington Square Park and saw these women, desperate women, jumping from the, I think it was the eighth or ninth story of this building. It was an utterly horrific, very public scene. And women in heterodoxy were involved in factory safety commissions. They had been doing research into 
the dangers of fire in factories, had been issuing reports and warning that you know, factories needed to have fire escapes. They needed to have hoses that could reach the floors, all these things that they didn't have in the Triangle Fire. It was an accident. It was a tragedy waiting to happen. And so it was one of these things that they were furious about, not so much shocked by, but just, we told you this was going to happen, and it did. And so the reaction to that fire was very political. Um, the morning march afterwards was not simply, oh, this was a tragic accident. It was a kind of, this is an example of owners putting profit over the lives of their workers. We are going to show you who we are. And the women took to the streets and made sashes and banners and paraded. And that kind of protest in which women Young women put their bodies out there. They put themselves into the streets. They made themselves visible. That really had a, a huge impact on organizing in a, in a number of different ways, In a, but especially the fight for the vote in the 1910s. And having been something very shocking, it sort of became very familiar in a short space of time. And really the nature of protest just kind of changes and it becomes about how many people can you get out in the street and how big can you make this march and simply that power of the power of numbers really becomes like a, a keystone of any kind of political protest that's great you've given us a great idea of how the women of heterodoxy are engaging with these ideas they are taking up causes they're sharing knowledge together and another aspect you've mentioned a few times i'd love to return to is its evidence of friendships friendships in shaping who they were who they became how they supported each other can you speak to that yeah it was one of the things i found most appealing about the club was that when we read biographies of women and, well, of, of political leaders especially, it, there's such an emphasis on sort of individual heroics and individual greatness. And I think with feminist biography and feminist history, so much of the story is about collaboration and friendship and the way that women supported each other out of the halls of power. This is a real... These women had a vision of what they wanted the world to be, but they simply didn't have access to the places where decisions were made. And if you wanted to have political influence, you had to do it through exerting influence on men. And I think that the the thing I found so fascinating about heterodoxy was what happened when these women came together, not with a goal of sort of influencing men, although that's sort of part of it, but with the goal of inspiring each other. And so I think there was there were aspects of sort of professional networking going on in heterodoxy meetings. A lot of the women I mentioned were journalists. It was very, very difficult for women to get editorial positions at newspapers and magazines. Very rare for them to be in a position to, you know, commission writers, but a lot of them earned money freelancing. And one of the hallmarks of successful freelancing is who you know to connect you with editors and who can vouch for your work. And that's something that they did for each other. And also personally, I think there was a great deal of support that came from being around women who'd also, who'd been living in public. You know, I think that's a very difficult thing to do, especially for women who weren't sort of raised to expect it. And especially what my example that I come back to a lot is divorce divorce at the time about something like less than 2% of women in 
in America got divorced at the time the club was active. Within the group, fully a third of the women had been divorced at least once. Um, Many of them were married multiple times. Several of them were in long-term same-sex partnerships. And so there was a sense of, I think, I can't help but feel that this group would have been a place where women could sort of breathe out and be themselves and know that, you know, if you were thinking of leaving your husband, it was a hugely expensive process. It was a public process. The newspapers would report on it. You couldn't do it quietly and privately and cheaply. That takes a very long time. It was intended to be, you know, a public shaming. But if you had a friend who had been through it and was there to tell the tale, I think that must have inevitably been help and have been a support. And if you were a lesbian couple and you had another, you know, there were friends in the club, I mean, that's that's got its own slightly different history within women's organizing and women's activism. And it was very certainly possible for women to live fairly openly with female partners. But within the club, it was known that people were a couple. It was known that they were not simply very good friends who happened to live together for for decades. So I think that sense of being known, being able to be who you were and being able to connect your personal history and your public activism sort of safely and freely and, and have other women understand where you were coming from, literally, that was a real part of how the club evolved and I think how it cemented the friendships that, you know, in many cases lasted for, for decades. Yes, it's a wonderful picture of that community and support and a really groundbreaking in this time. And the issues that these women are dealing with and thinking about echo so much through the last century from how to balance work and family to not to be too flippant, but, you know, to have dresses with pockets. I think, you know, that's still something I see women wanting today. And I just wanted to get your sense of, you know, all the time that's passed and these women's conversations, the links there. Absolutely. I mean, I think in the course of writing this book and the course of it coming out, I mean, we we've seen such a resurgence of the horror at women's freedom and I think and and sort of a a backlash against women's right to choose the path of their own life. And I think that that is something that the women of heterodoxy really recognised. They saw it as a holistic thing. That's one of the things about feminism for them. It was part of everything. It wasn't just one fight. It wasn't just about the vote. It was about, as you say, wearing clothes that allowed you to live, go about the world in a practical and easy way. It was about not having to take your husband's name, which was a fight that a lot of the women were involved with, which can seem frivolous. Margaret Sanger thought it was frivolous that they concerned themselves with this and not just single-mindedly about birth control. But single-mindedness was not really a hallmark of the club. They saw the connections between these different fights. And all of it was about simply the right to be who you were authentically and sort of honestly in public and in private. And that was and is enormously threatening to some people with power. I think that we really have seen a kind of, you know, we are seeing, we are living in a moment of sort of global resurgence of a kind of idea that if women would just shut up and behave 
everything could go back to the way it never was, you know, and, and there's this sort of idea that women having, and it starts with the body. That's something that, that was a fight that heterodoxy women were a part of the birth control fight. They had different, somewhat different approaches to it than Sanger, although they knew her and supported her. But the idea that you could choose what your family looked like, you could choose how your life went, that happiness came from your freedom to choose in a broadest sense, that I think they they knew how dangerous an idea that was. And I think when I was, when I first kind of came up with the idea of the book, I didn't really think, I thought we had got past that. And then the few years of writing it and publishing it, it's been shocking to me how much that continues and how much work there is still to be done and how how threatening it remains to certain people for women to have a voice for women to speak honestly about their lives and for women to have freedom. That was Joanna Scutz, Hotbed, Bohemian New York and the Secret Club that Sparked Modern Feminism, is out now, published by Duckworth. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 